Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love dogs and cats, and I'm here to talk to experts and authors about the animals who share our world. Thanks for listening on Long Island's only NPR station, WLIW-FM 88.3, where Dog Talk originated 13 years ago. You can download podcasts of the 700 previous shows in the podcast library at RadioPetLady.com, along with Cat Chat and my other Pet Talk podcast radio programs. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is brought to you in part with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes a vast variety of high-protein recipes for cats and dogs in cans and pouches, using human-grade ingredients and prepared in a human food facility. This show is also made possible by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned company founded and run by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who personally engineered all his specialized litters. Dr. Elsie's is also the founding sponsor of the Cat Film Festival, which is now streaming alongside the Dog Film Festival free on Amazon Prime and Tubi TV. My guests today are James Gorman from the New York Times talking about his article on dog aging. Michael Wambacher will be here, a dog trainer on the West Coast, talking about alive pets and their Italian adventure with dogs. And Denise Bash will be here, the director of Disaster Response for Greater Good Charities, talking about the pause across the Pacific flights. I am so happy that the wonderful journalist for the New York Times, James Gorman, keeps writing about dogs. It means I get to keep talking to him, and you get to keep enjoying our conversations. I hope you enjoy them. Jim, welcome back to the show. You've written another wonderful article about old dogs and new research in which Labrador retrievers are compared to Tom Hanks and his aging, which you're very funny about in what you wrote. Were you a little surprised that that was the human they used as their, uh, as their litmus test? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, but it made sense from their point of view. Um, Pick somebody that you can, uh, people can relate to. Everybody knows what Tom Hanks looks like. Everybody loves him. Yeah. We don't want him to grow old. Right. But But what I'd also (laughs) forgotten, because the photos came along with your article, was that he was a child actor. So we could see pictures of him really young. And I'd forgotten that. He just seems to have always been... I mean, the grown-up. There was that one where he was, you know, the the man and the boy's body, but not not a child right, actor. Right. He's really been around forever. So, what did you think he about has, this yeah. research? I mean, the 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 comparison to Tom Hanks that we could all relate to was kind of funny, but it but the but it's serious research, and you always you always look carefully into research. This was done in Vienna, which is one of the birthplaces of dog research, which. Again, kind of surprises me. Does that surprise you that Vienna is almost the birthplace of dog study? No, uh, not really. I mean, there are a lot of uh, there's a there's a big dog and a big wolf institute there. I have to confess that um, you know I actually go into a lot of these articles because I'm interested in dogs. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and then and then and then the science sort of follows. Yes. But this was a this this. There were a lot of different researchers. This covered several uh, different articles, 
and the um, the Tom Hanks stuff was among the most complicated. They that was done uh, mostly at the uh, um, at the National Institutes of Health, and uh, some of the other work was done in in Vienna. Um, but what they found, they were they were looking at whether dogs physiologically, uh, whether their aging physiologically is like our aging. And they're subject to a lot of the same things we are, but they don't follow exactly the same pattern. So they came up with this uh, as kind of a, uh, a side effect. They came up with this very complicated way for coming up with a dog's age. And it's not the, you know, seven years. It's a almost incomprehensible one that works okay for the old dogs and the young dogs, but, and then it doesn't work for others, but it's, uh, it's pretty silly. And they use, uh, not silly. Well, it's, mean, it's it would, you made it very funny. I'm just going to quote from your article and I'll, and I'll put a link to the article in the the podcast of the show, but to calculate dog years rather than the seven dog years for every human year, you must now multiply the natural logarithm of a dog's age in human years by 16 and then add 31. Is that clear? It's actually not as hard as it sounds as long as you have a calculator or internet access. For example, the natural log of six is 1.8 roughly, which multiplied by 16 is about 29, which plus 31 is 60. Okay, it's not that easy, even with the internet. The whole article is so funny that way. It's just, okay, science, and we're following along, and then, oh, we're not really following along. I guess what surprises me, besides the fact that people all over the world have been studying dogs for a long time and getting more sort of mainstream coverage of it now, is that this idea that the way dogs age is somehow going to teach us about humans. Are we this egocentric? I mean, what the heck? Why does the way they age, given that a large breed dog is going to live to seven or eight and the longest lived chihuahua is like 20 years old. Do you understand this? I mean, in, in the, the bird's eye view of this thing, does it make sense to you? We're going to study their DNA and, and take blood samples and, and, and see if they're getting smarter or, or duller as they get older. Do you really think it's useful to understand humans? In re I mean, just between well, us at a dinner party, I want to ask. Yeah, well, the reason that the, one of the reasons that humans are the goal of all this is that there's no money to study dogs. Oh, yeah, good point. If you, good point. <laughs> if you're a scientist and you want to study dogs, nobody's going to give you any money. I good mean, maybe point. Purina will kick in a little bit. Right, sure. But the National Institutes of Health will kick in a lot of money if it looks like it might solve some human diseases. And the thing is that dogs do suffer. I mean, if you've ever watched an old dog walk, well, the reason is arthritis. Same True as true enough. Dogs. And uh, they get diabetes. They get they get other things that we get. So, and if you want to study, if you can study humans and you want to follow a human, the aging process all the way through. Um, well, you've only got one lifetime. And good point. The people you're studying only have one That's lifetime. That's a good point. You'll be well, dead before you could finish studying them. Right. But with dogs, very sadly for us who, who love them, um, but usefully for researchers, who I have to say many of them are also dog lovers. Of course. Um, you, you know, you can watch the dog's age, and then you can watch another generation age and another generation age. So it's a little easier to do the studies. So... If they're similar, and these are not dogs that they're putting in laboratories and in cages. I want right. to point that out. Sure. Nobody's, nobody's taking these dogs. They're 
there's just this vast population of dogs that we own. They're all aging. And most owners are delighted to bring their dogs in for a little test or even a blood sample, which, of course, bothers the dog a little bit, but you not, know, much. not that much. No. And, um, and then, of course, along with learning about people, they also learn about dogs. Um, so it's useful uh, for dogdom as well. I right. Mean, the veterinarians are happy, too. Right. So, That's a good um, point. Yeah. So I think it, I think it makes sense. And one one thing that's kind of interesting, one of the things that I forget which researchers are doing this, but one of the things that interests people is whether aging is sort of uh, like almost like a disease that happens at the end of life or whether it's part of it's sort of programmed in like it starts at puberty. You start right. making developmental changes and whether that follows all the way through. And um, so one study which, which followed how dogs change their behavior, you know, uh, seemed to indicate more that it, it, it's related to, uh, it's part of development. I mean, that was also true in the study with dogs' ages because what they looked at there was what goes on with the genes. So the DNA, have, which surprised me because yeah, I didn't exactly. really understand that DNA and aging had a correlation. So that's just ignorance on my part. Did you know that? Am I like the last person to know that? Uh, I'm sure you're not the last. <laughs> <laughs> but you did know it. Well, I, uh, that's sort of what I get paid for. If I Good didn't, point. Yeah. I wouldn't have my job much longer. <laughs> but... Yeah, we all get the DNA is there, and it gives a blueprint for okay, let's how to build a human. Right. But once the human is up and running, <laughs> all the DNA and the genes they're still active. You know, stuff is still going on. Right. True. And there are changes in when different genes are turned on, how much they're turned on, and there are changes that go on over time. And one of those changes, which is too complicated to get into, is called methylation. It's not um, too complicated because you write about it in the article. It, I think it, it sounded really interesting, but explain it a little, you know, to the lay listener. But it's good that we know these words. It's a cool word. Right. Well, what it means is that there are these chemicals that's called, and they're methyl groups, and they get attached to parts of the DNA, which um, it affects how strongly the genes are expressed. I mean, you might have a gene that's telling your body to make too much of something. Uh, which, uh, you know, you want to tone down. Right. Or, and sometimes there are medicines to do that. But that's what methylation is, is doing. And over time, as you age, there are patterns of changes in methylation such that they can look at those, at what's going on with the methyl groups in DNA, like a sample from somebody, and say, how old that person is. Um, and so they wanted to know, well, could we do that with dogs, too? It seemed likely. And, yes, they can. So now they can – that's another point where they can compare people and dogs. And none of this has come up with any real findings yet. Right. Like it's going to mm -hmm. necessarily help us or the dog. Um, but it's a building block of, of knowledge. Exactly. I yeah. guess what I thought yeah. very interesting about the way you wrote up the methylation – was lab tests can tell how old a human is just from the pattern of methylation. I thought, is this like the redwood trees? You count the rings and you know how old the tree is? I mean, with horses, Almost. you could look at their teeth and have a similar ability to know a horse's age. But this seems like it's quite, well, duh, scientific. It's a scientific study. But the fact that they can l look at the pattern of methylation and go, oh, 52 or 
50 versus 20. And the same thing with dogs. That's, that's surprising to me. That's got to be a building block for the next thing they're going to learn or understand about cancer exactly. or dementia or arthritis or, exactly. you know, yeah. autoimmune diseases even. Who knows? I found it really yeah. interesting. So, I, sorry, go ahead. No, I mean, what that means, you can also, of course, look at a person's teeth or a dog's teeth. Or, I mean, there are other ways to do aging. But what it means is if you have just tissue samples, you can you can look at the DNA and you can, how much you can learn from those samples. And now, and also seeing how that pattern of methylation, how this chemical pattern changes over time, you get to see how a dog develops. So like they, they move more quickly through youth and adolescence than we do, and, but they don't move as quickly in some other parts. And this is just, you know, starting out, so right. they don't really have any conclusions. But, um, I mean, it kind of makes sense that dogs uh, move a little differently through the path of aging. And they didn't look at different breeds, which, as you pointed out, you know, some breeds tend to live much longer than others. Um, and that's an interesting thing in and of itself. That's so true. Why would a larger yeah. thing live shorter? We've just come to understand that, but there's no particular logic to it. You point out in, in your article in a very funny way that all the dogs studied in Vienna happen to be border collies, and many of us don't think right. border collies are really representative of any other dog. They are by far exactly. the smartest dog. They've just been being studied for weeks in some international challenge of the smartest yeah. dog, and they were all border collies. And, right. you know, they, they don't, as, as you say, I'm a little surprised that any of the, the Vienna Border Collies studied were mature. That would suggest a certain calm, a willingness to tilt the head and muse that doesn't seem to fit the breed, with its desperate desire to be constantly chasing sheep, geese, children, or frisbees, or learning the <laughs> names of 1,000 objects on command. It's like, I don't know any of us that have exactly. a dog that sort of fits that bill. My dogs have been entered into a project called the Dog Aging Project, which is also uh, yes. underwritten yes. by the National Institutes for Health. There's 40,000 of us. And I have a questionnaire uh -huh. to fill out that it means they're going to know more about Maisie and Wanda Weimaraner than anybody knows about me. It's like, really? You need to know yes. how they feel about, you know, spring grass? How, did, how, does, how does your knowledge about that project sort of fit in with this Vienna studying being done? Well, the Vienna study, uh, I think, was of the um, sort of how dogs mature their behavior, how their personalities change over time. And that showed that they sort of mellow in the same way that most humans do. Of course, we all have examples in our family of people <laughs> who don't mellow as they get older. And, Hardly. And, and there, are, there are also dogs that don't. I mean, whenever you write anything about dogs, you always get emails from people, a couple different kinds. One from people who say, you know, oh, it reminded me of how wonderful my dog right. is. And another which is, you know, my dog is 120 years old and it's still chewing <laughs> up the house. Absolutely, because um, we all want to be different and special. We want our dogs to be different and special and not follow some sort of programmed algorithm. But the, the, I And don't... many, yeah, and they don't. We're talking about averages. But this vast dog aging project yeah it's looking at all sorts of different things from right. the genes to uh, uh behavior to to everything and the the person who's running that is one of the people who's pushing this idea that since dogs suffer a lot of the same ailments we do 
And since they live a lot more quickly, um, they go through their lives more quickly, right. then well, why not study them if, in fact, they do seem to be pretty similar to us? And again, you know, I want to emphasize, as the researchers always are telling me, we're not put, these are not dogs that we're putting in cages. Exactly. I mean, that happens. People do. But these projects are all about, okay, you bring in your pet or you let us take right. a, you know, do the genome and you tell us how they behave, how they age, and maybe we'll learn something useful about people or dogs or yeah. both. Or both. And you have to tell them what the dogs eat. I mean, I guess cancer is the yep. big, giant, you know, cloud over it. If, if we could, and dogs are now more and more prone to cancer, and yeah. we don't yeah. know why, for sure. Environmental yeah. nutrition, I think, doesn't make any logical sense. So is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it just that we're finding more cancer? We certainly have been finding a lot of cancer in humans for an awfully long time. That would be the sweet yeah. spot if something if something could emerge information-wise about how to identify it, turn it off, slow it down, whatever that might be, that would be worth a big investment, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And it's one thing that's good is that dogs share the environment that humans do. That's right. So mm -hmm. if, if there turns out to be some environmental cause that they can narrow in on, um, you know, we're looking at the same kind of environment. Environment. Right. Animals that live in, in laboratories have a very controlled uh, situation. So this is more like those one one of those big epidemiological studies where they watch people from a you know a Harvard class or something for the next forty or fifty or sixty years. Well, they can do that with dogs in a much shorter amount of time. A number, yeah, yeah, a number of generations. And, or watching uh, a whole village in Naples or south of Naples to see why those people all live to a hundred and smoked and drank right. and, and, you know, didn't just live on yogurt like the people on some Greek island that lived to 120. It's hard to, exactly. to sort of compare that to our lifestyles and, and what we eat and drink and think and how we were made, what our blueprint was like. Well, it's, a, it's a great article, Jim, as, as all of your articles are, because it's very smart and interesting and teaches us something, but also makes us laugh. So thank you for that. Thank you for constantly being on the lookout for dog-centric topics that they give us something to make us feel a little smarter, but basically think, is my dog like that? Or my dog isn't like that, <laughs> right? Is what it boils down right. to. Thank exactly. you for being here. Yeah. It's lovely to talk to you as always. Well, it's lovely to be with, talk to you again. So thank you. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Food, which has been making natural pet food for 30 years without preservatives, fillers, or anything artificial. USDA certified meats and fish are always the first ingredient in kibble that is grain-free or crafted with healthy grains. The show is also supported by Daily Dose, a daily dental chew with an outer layer that cleans dogs' teeth by breaking down biofilm and bacteria on teeth and gums. The core of each chew contains clinically proven supplements to help manage either a dog's joints, heart, skin, or anxiety. This show is sponsored in part by Canine Active, a natural mobility supplement for competitive canine athletes that can also help senior dogs move comfortably again. Clinical trials of Canine Active show improvement in older dogs' mobility within a week and can be safely used alongside other supplements and medications. I have the pleasure of meeting a dog trainer in Oakland, California, well-known in the area, Michael Wambacher. He's written two wonderful books. There's a puppy in the house, Surviving the First Five Months, which really echoes my feeling about puppies. Are you sure you want one? And Good Dog, Happy Baby, Preparing Your 
dog for the arrival of your child. But how I met Michael was because I got a press release about an amazing sounding trip for people and their little dogs to Tuscany and Rome, uh, only 14 people, and this precious trip with, you know, villas outside of cities and dog food made by people, chefs in Milan. And I thought, well, there must have been a lot of dog problems and issues to anticipate. And it turned out that a live pet, Aldo, had reached out to Michael Wambacher for help. So, Michael, welcome to the show. And thank you for helping Aldo and a live pet fantasize about a, a world in which we can actually grab our little dogs, <laughs> jump on airplanes, get into minibuses, go to beautiful hotels and walk around museums. Uh, it, it seems far in the future, doesn't it? It does. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, as we were just talking pre-show here, I think we're all ready to start imagining a post-nightmare world Absolutely. where we can do fun things like yes. that again. And also, you know, I think the people over there in general, they've um, there's, there's, there's a lot of thought gone into this. I mean, obviously, the whole the current crisis is not off the minds of people that are planning this thing in terms of, you know, the types of places where they're going to go out in the country and the types of facilities that they're going to stay at, which are smaller places that are, you know, well sanitized and all that stuff, including the buses and so forth. Plus, it's a small it's the whole thing is very small. It's a maximum of 14 people. Um, and I've just, I was impressed when I spoke with Aldo, who was putting this together, about how much thought has gone into the Me obvious too. situation that we're in. Me and, too. And but, then, you know, but the problem yeah. is that, you know, he says, you know, it's a bus that can fit 40 and there'll be 14. I'm like, Aldo, nobody wants to be on a bus. You know, we can't right. think about these thoughts yet. But I, did, I fantasized immediately. I thought, how do I fit a 95-pound Weimaraner into into a handbag? Hmm, that's going to be tricky because that's <laughs> those are my dogs. I thought, I want to go on this trip. And I mean, I lived in Tuscany and Rome multiple times throughout my life, owned apartments and houses in both places. So I really know my way around. I still wanted to go on the trip. I thought, I want to be a fly on the wall when 13 yeah. other people, each with one or more dogs, are, are taking this trip because they want to have the trip with their dog. I mean, what you as a veteran dog trainer, what does that tell you about the canine human bond? It's It's pretty over the top, crazy, wonderful, isn't it? It's very wonderful, and especially, you know, I mean, I'm in this weird position in my business right now that uh, the pandemic, which has so horribly affected so many small businesses, the dog business is exploding. That's what I've heard. Yeah. There, I'm, I'm, I have a number of veterinarian friends, and they've all told me the same thing. There are more, I see more puppies in a month now than I did all of last year. Isn't so, that something? And that's something? every one of them every month. Isn't so, that something? You know, I, I've, I've heard and read, oh, you know, fosters are up and adoptions are up from shelters because people are lonely or need companionship. I personally am not a fan of this concept. It's sort of like, let's give the children a puppy on Christmas. This, you don't get a dog because you're lonely because there's a, a medical pandemic. You get one because it really is what you want to do with your life because it, it means reshaping your life, right. as, as your books point out. Yeah, I think what happened for a lot of people is their life was reshaped. Now yes. they're at home, and now they've wanted a dog for a long time. I mean, that was my situation when I was still a corporate guy. I, you know, I wanted a dog. I desperately wanted a dog, but my lifestyle didn't allow for it. And, um, you know, when I got out of the corporate world, I, I changed all that. And so a lot of people are now, you know, working from home. And I, I also think the whole loneliness thing and all of it, I mean, to your earlier point about, like, the incredible companions that these guys are, they're, more, they're not, it's not a gerbil. 
you know. It's, right, but uh, then, it's, but it's then, a, not, but the dog isn't a gerbil either, in a way. I mean, he's better than a gerbil. But if they, if people do go back to offices, what do they intend to do with these dogs? I mean, I don't want to discuss the whole issue that's been made into a PR pitch. Oh, how to deal with separation anxiety when you go back to work? No, folks, that's not really the issue. You know, it's sort of like, did you think ahead? It's like having a baby. I know a couple of women who love babies, so they had a lot of babies. Whoops, they grow up into miserable teenagers and then, you know, 30-year-olds who still live at home. Well, I'm, the nice thing with dogs is they don't really, they don't really, they don't really have much of that. I mean, I think most of the people I talk to, and which is a lot now, I mean, I, I, I probably am working with uh, 200 dogs a week right now. Wow. And people, you know, wow. virtual consultations, virtual group classes, and some in-person training. And I mean, these, you know, these are all smart people that make money and um, and um, and know that it's going to be a, a long-term commitment right, they've been wanting true. to make. Yeah. And I think these are the type of people. Also, again, I think to your point, circling back to the whole uh, the Italy thing, uh, they they want to be with their dogs, or at least a certain a, a large percentage of them want to go do fun things. But maybe the kids are all, they're gone. You know, the kids are graduated and off to their yep. own lives. And um, well, it seems want to spend time yeah. With- I mean, it seemed to me if it's only fourteen people. You could fill that. I said to Aldo, but you could fill that just with Michael Wambacher's clients. You have a lot of high-profile, rich, famous clients. I could fill it with 14 people that listen to this show. In fact, there's people who could find six friends and take the whole tour over as a personal tour. It's a really wonderful idea. And I guess one of the things that interested me in what Aldo told me you had been suggesting to him, I said, you know, you really, here's me, bossy pants. You should have Michael go on the trip because a lot of people's dogs have zero training. The people are clueless. No matter how much time they spend with their dog, they don't realize that a flexi lead wrapping around four other people's ankles, dogs that aren't good with other dogs, dogs that aren't great with strangers, dogs that aren't even fully housebroken are going to be a problem. He told me you had this brilliant idea once this thing gets off the ground and there's no more COVID, it, it'll fly when it, once that happens, that you had the idea of having people video their dogs, meeting other dogs and people. What a clever idea. So people couldn't lie and say, yeah. oh, he's wonderful. And then turns out to be a holy terror, right? Yeah, well, that was my first thing with him. Is like, how? Because I see all kinds of people with all kinds of crazy dogs. And when they want to board them, for example, I mean, you know, some of them, those are lie. Oh yeah. My dog is fine. Oh yeah. And you find out, well, they're not fine, and now this person's gone for three weeks. Yes. Um, you know, so there has to be some vetting. There has to be some serious vetting, and you know, we're going to put stuff in place for that. Um, the other thing, you know, that I, I was a little bit surprised by was his pricing was so I found it too low. Reasonable. Too low. Too I low, said, Aldo, rich low, people so. like to spend a lot of money. This should not seem like it's reasonable because the hotels that he's picked. And he and his, he's been running tours in Italy. I mean, he's a professional tour planner, guide planner. Uh, they've been to all the hotels. They're really nice hotels. I mean, lovely places. And all this, you know, taking care of all the ground transportation. And you don't have to really think about anything. The, 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 the ones who come out, I think, the best are the dogs. Because the meals you can choose for your dog, three meals a day, which are cooked and and pouched and waiting for you in your hotel room my favorite was the sar- fresh sardines from the mediterranean i was like i could e- i could eat that i don't need to give that to Maisie and wanda they're happy to eat deer poo you know i'll eat the sardines from the mediterranean let's talk about your book so anyway here's the thing folks if this idea appeals to you write to me at radio pet lady at gmail and i will send you the information about it, it it's slated to be september of 2021 but 
as I know, slating the, the next Dog and Cat Film Festival for November of 2021 in New York City live. We don't know if that's going to be, if the world will be open or still shut, if things will be better or worse. So we're just all going to think positive and put on our fantasy hats. But I think it's fantastic that, that Michael, they thought through it so carefully, and you've come on board to bring up all the possible dog aspects I think, and it comes with a wonderful collapsible crate that can go in the minivan for your dog to be in, and, and maybe when you leave them in the hotel room, it's it's really beautifully thought out. But let's well, yeah, talk- and he's also thought out. Well, so just to, to finish up on that, sure. and we'll move on. But the, sure. the thought out that, um, you know, obviously if you go to a place like the Coliseum or some of the great museums and things like that, you know, they can, you can't bring your dog, so they've got daycare arrangements I for know. your dog. I that, saw that. Really in yeah. fact, I had this other fantasy: is that I go on this trip. And I simply photo document the whole thing, but from the dog's point of view. So I, I really did imagine the Malty Poo and the Havanese sitting with the minder outside the Coliseum saying to each other, hey, we came this whole way. We don't get to see it. What is this? What a ripoff. You know, I just there's so many cute things you can imagine the dogs thinking like, really? Another look at that cute, look at that cute little Italian look at that cute dog, little like Italian dog. <laughs> or, hey, there's some spaghetti. We never get to eat spaghetti at home. Anyway, it's a, it's a great idea, and I feel bad for them that the timing is so harsh for, you know, the world around us. But they, they also have a travel agent who helps people book if they don't know how to book comfortably with a dog being in the cabin with them and that whole thing. You know, as it is right now, I think half the people flying on airplanes should be in a crate and muzzled. They're, everyone's gone bonkers. I mean, bonkers. Well, I think to your point about the whole the actual logistics of travel, I think when I spoke with him, they're probably going to have to put a weight and size limit on the dogs because you they can't did. bring an 85-pound German no, no, they did. on it, a Lufthansa flight. No, they do have a weight limit. I think it's 23 pounds. It's there. I looked yeah. very carefully. And a 23-pound dog, I know from personal experience because I've traveled with very, you know, certain clients of mine, uh, 23 pounds, well, it's a tight fit, but they'll generally fit under the seat in front of you. Uh, you have to squish them a little bit. You kind of squish them. You get an iron and you push them down a little bit or you make sure they have short legs. (laughs) Anyway, they can be in the cabin with you. Let's talk about your book, There's a Puppy in the House, Surviving the First Five Months. I'm sure you've sold a ton of copies since this proliferation of puppy customers that you have, but proliferation of puppies in general. It's really a wonderful book because the the, the first year's tough, but the first five months are brutal. I, I just this is my value Correct. judgment. Brutal, hard work, constant work, really difficult. What I love about the book is it's full of black and white photos of you demonstrating with a puppy and some charming line drawings. But I think that your photos are great because when when other books, training books, talk about you know just do this with your left arm and that with your right arm and throw the treat that way, you're like, huh? And this shows Michael doing this in a series of photos. It's really helpful. I, I'm sure you realize that being a trainer, that that you know a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Yeah. Well, it's funny you say. So I get a lot of positive feedback about that book, and I, you know I wrote it about 16, 17 years ago. Wow. Um, but I write I, just before I got on with you, I just finished with my publisher because I've got another one that's in the works. That's basically it's called Integrated Dog Training. A visual guide, an A to Z visual guide to how to train your dog. And basically, nice. it's going to have three, four, five hundred photographs in wow. it. And it's, going to, it's basically start to finish obedience training, heavy, you know, it's basically heavily image driven, um, you know, to take this idea that you just said and just really put it in a 
in a larger format with a lot more material and a lot more content. And uh, so, you know, that's I'm hoping that's going to be out this time next year. Good for you. Um, the, I mean, one of the things that I love about it, there's a puppy in the house surviving the first five months. There's lots of information in it that is equally relevant for big dogs or grown dogs or adult dogs. Like right. you, you have three right. photos, which is all it took to show how to pill a dog, how to give a dog a pill. The number of times right. I've even tried to show someone in person, you put your left fingers between this tooth and that tooth to get the mouth open. And then with your other hand, you tilt the head back. And when I show them even, it's really, they're like, I don't think I can do that. Because it's very hard for someone yeah. who does something easily and automatically to describe it or even demonstrate it. But your photos do a great job. How to hold the upper jaw and the lower jaw and pop the pill in and then hold their, hold their muzzle closed until they swallow. They're, they're all things that, people who've already had dogs kind of think they know or they certainly think other people know and it's all a mysterious new world for people who've never had puppies before i mean people well, have done nothing but like, rescue yeah. maybe they never got a puppy maybe they've had 10 dogs oh. but never had one fresh out of the bin right exactly and right now as you said there's a there's just an explosion of first-time dog owners and um, again i think it's it's great for my business obviously so i'm happy about that but i just think you know dogs are just such a bomb for, for all kinds of things. You know, for example, my, my fiance is a uh, war correspondent. So she was brutalized over there wow. in Iraq. She was with 11 combat tours in Iraq. Oh she my was God. shot in the head, blown oh up by roadside bombs, um, oh all kinds goodness. of stuff, and had just, uh, just horrendous PTSD. And, um, you know, nothing helped really. You know, so all the talk therapy didn't really help. And there was not, we did one alternative therapy that helped and then getting her a little dog and it's made all the difference so these guys that's what i was saying earlier you know they're more you know when people say you know they're like family they're not like family they are family they're, they're, yeah exactly and the kind of they have a you know they're, they're a simple pure uncomplicated relationship and it's really hard to find those and and i again the, the loneliness and the pen and the, you know the, the people who are lonely especially older people who maybe Maybe they're a widow or a widower, and now they're stuck at home, and they, you know, they don't have a lot of friends around. It's huge. The psycho-emotional comfort of, uh, you know, I see it with my little guy here, you know. I mean, Who I have you got? What kind close. of dog do you have? He's a little 12-pound terrier mix. Nice. He's like half, nice. half Cairn, half Yorkie, something cool. like that. Cool, cool. Like nice. Cool little dude. You know, well, what so about I your? I want to go back to your girlfriend's PTSD dog. Did you, in any way, train that dog to respond to episodes she has, or did she not have specific episodes? Just overall angst. Well, she had a lot angst. of specific episodes, but we didn't teach the dog to respond to specific episodes. The just the general presence of the dog uh, has has dramatically reduced. I mean, she used to have horrible screaming nightmares every single night for years. Okay. Wow. And um, now with the dog and the one, the kind of one alternative, we did one session with an alternative therapy. So between that and the dog, the, she has maybe two nightmares a year now. That's pretty amazing. Well, the yeah, alternative therapy certainly did something, but we do hear a lot on the show about organizations training PTSD dogs for returning veterans. Well, and of course, a war correspondent is a veteran herself. And what, what's interesting is when there's stranger anxiety, group anxiety, the dogs very quickly, our own dogs do it anyway, Michael, as you know, but trained to pick up on whatever odor of adrenaline or fear that the person's giving off or certain physical clues or ticks to them getting anxious and the dog interrupts it. Basically what they do is Correct. nudge them, lick them, you know, even pull their sleeve with their, with their mouth, anything to well, you know, break that. 
so it's funny you bring that up because one of the things I had planned to do at this time of the year that was because uh, this is something I want to do as uh, you know as I start I mean in the later years of my career here I'm going to probably retire in three or four years but one of the things I wanted to do is to train dogs like that there was actually a program in somewhere around St. Louis that I was going to go to that they, you know it was a two-week seminar that uh, would great. teach you how to do this and then of course the pandemic happened and the program fell apart but it's something I'm very passionate about that I actually would really and you know like to do. I run a boarding and training program here in conjunction with a local um, uh, boarding facility, a really nice daycare boarding facility. And I wanted to train the team. I wanted to learn the material. It's a great and train idea. Our team to do it's a that. great idea. And, 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 and then yeah, you can and, start and, pulling dogs from the shelter because once you identify exactly. the type of dog who is appropriate to the job, they they become quite easily trained. From what I've understood from a lot of people doing this. And, you know, if there's one of you and then 12 employees and then each of them reaches out to a shelter, you could, the good you can do is obviously enormous. Well, I've, no, no, I've loved talking to you. Um, we've run out of time, but your, your books, Good Dog, Happy Baby, are really wonderful for people preparing your dog for the arrival of your child. We do not recommend giving up your dog when you have a baby, please. We really recommend that that's not moral or ethical. You can prepare your dog and prepare yourselves. And there's a puppy in the house surviving the first five months. Michael Wambacher and Alive Pets has this really great tour for next fall. If you're curious, you can go to Alive Pets and find it or write to me and I will send you a link. Thanks for being here, Michael. Thanks for all the fun you're having and all the fun, <laughs> joyful relationships you're helping to nurture. Well, thank you so much for, um, for having time on, on your show. For, for little old me. Thank you little so much. old you is a delight. It. I look forward to having you come back when you're doing PTSD dogs. And best of everything to your sweetheart. That sounds like a, like an uphill battle, but like she's on the other side of it. Thanks a lot. This show is partly brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, a privately owned company that makes freshly cooked dog food from organic vegetables and humanely raised meats that are human edible. Frozen pouches shipped directly to your home to be served as a complete meal or as part of a pet's diet. This show is also supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, who have combined science and nature in animal wellness products. Earth Animal Zen Pens deliver precisely dosed CBD gel made from full-spectrum hemp oil to rub inside a dog or cat's ear. Well, now we get to have the exciting news of how the Paws Across the Pacific flight really unfolded. Last week, I talked to Mira Horowitz from the Hawaiian shelter that supplied half of the animals that were on this rescue flight. And now today, I have the pleasure of meeting Denise Bash, who's the Director of Disaster Response for Greater Good Charities, which is a really cool organization I actually want to learn more about. But she was there. She was on the ground. She was part of this monumental airlift of pets that couldn't get adopted in Hawaii and overcrowded shelters, getting them to the mainland. Whoever thought of the USA as the mainland? But it is. Denise, welcome back. It must have been quite an amazing, extraordinary experience, this gigantic plane disgorging over 600 pets in crates. I, I suppose nothing like that you ever quite like that you've ever done before. No, it definitely was not. It was it was just a totally new experience for me, and honestly, everyone involved. This was a very new type of response um, because of because of the fact that it was Hawaii with multiple islands, and you had one shot at it. Can you talk a little more clearly into your phone because you're kind of sounding muffled? <clears throat> oh, I'm so sorry. Sure, no absolutely. problem. Just make sure your mouth is where where it's designed to be, so we can hear clearly about the adventure. <laughs> 
yeah let's was, talk for was, a minute about this let's talk about the disaster response of greater good charities first we have to back up a couple of steps i have been aware of greater good charities because it has been involved in all manner of pet um rescue or interventions but but i guess other things too it's kind of a a big Wizard of Oz, in my view. Who are you? Where are you? How do you decide who to bestow your goodness on? <laughs> well, Greater Good is the reason I think you're thinking of the Wizard of Oz is because it's, it is a very broad mission, as opposed to a lot of organizations that are people or pets. Yes. We are people, pets, and planet. And right. so you'll see our response act and behave a little bit differently. Um about 70% of our work actually ends up being in the animal field, whether it's um, wild animals or human animals. But the fact still remains that many times in disaster, you will see us working with people, um, working to reestablish um, issues related to the environment after a disaster and things like that. So um, I, I work in disaster, which crosses all our pillars, people, pets, and the planet, because when a disaster happens, all And when you say who gets the help, you know, how do you right. decide how right. to bestow help or something, that's honestly the responsibility of, of, of spending donor money and spending it responsibly is a very serious one. And so we do it in different ways. We do it with in-kind things, gifts that are given away as grants, and we do it with cash that is given away as grants in order to mitigate a disaster as effectively as we can. We actually are the country's largest food banking operation with about 26 affiliate warehouses that we operate in different states. Wow. Um, and so one of the big, yeah, one of the biggest things that we can do with food banking for pet food is, is stand that up and activate that quickly. Like in COVID, for instance, we expanded that food banking in the beginning for the, from like March through the end of September, we actually stood up and operated out of 47 different states. In, um, we actually managed to get food to Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, wow. uh, the Bahamas. Because really, when you think about a disaster, you think about one of the things that happens to people, right? They're always there to feed yourself. Um, but they're they're not as good, but getting a lot better at feeding your pet. And what happens if you don't feed a pet? Then people feed their food to their pet. So that's one of the things that we're very strong on. The other thing that we do is we help to pre-evacuate a lot of animals um, when we have a disaster that we can see coming. So we'll work with organizations because we have thousands of established relationships with shelters where you know if we know there's like a hurricane incoming, right. for instance, we'd be working in that region with other partners, national and local, to help get animals that are adoptable out of those shelters to begin with to make room and ready for what we know is coming, which is an overflow of animals that will need to be held for a while. And so we can, A, determine if they're just astray or B, their family's looking for them or whatnot. And obviously you came along after Katrina, which was the big teachable moment in this country to realize that there was no, no plan in place to evacuate or even rescue animals during a disaster, particularly ones that seemed to be stray but simply lived in a community where there were free-roaming pets. So if you had been, yeah. if you had yeah. been in existence then, there would, I mean, the tragedy still would have been on many levels. 
but maybe less so on the human-animal bond and the people who lost their pets. Well, it's really, it is, it's that, that one. And I think that, I think the entire country learned from that. And that's oh, yeah. how the Pets Act was born, that a state had to have a plan in place. Um, and, it, and it's super important. Now, keeping in mind, I, you know, it's really good that the states have to have a plan in place and the National Animal Rescue and Shelter Coalition has been built after that so that states and the government can communicate with not-for-profits to even plan further. And it, it really does help. But it's all about personal responsibility. And many of us constantly think of disasters as that huge earthquake or that huge fire. But in reality, the biggest personal disaster that happens to families on a regular basis is house fires. Really? Um, and yes. And so people, you know, the definition of a disaster is being passed through resources. And, and it's a personal disaster, right? It didn't take down right. your community, but it took down your home. And if people are ready, you know, whether or not, because most people aren't ready for a disaster still, unless they see something coming at them and they go run and they get their bread and their milk and, you know, their week's worth of whatever, they're not actually standing ready. It is. It's human nature. I think, I think you, you know, it's it's great to say people need to take more personal responsibility. Human nature is not to embrace risk. How many people don't have pet insurance? How many people don't have other kinds of insurance for themselves, much less a pantry with food? Speaking of which, I want to go back to what you said about food pantries. You said that one of the problems when people don't have or don't can't afford pet food as they give their food to their pets. My understanding is two-pronged in the excellent um, value for your food pantries for humans is that people relinquish mm-hmm. their pets. They either let them go or they take them sobbing and crying to a shelter and say, we can't feed the dog or the cat anymore. So there, there's just no food at all. And I think that COVID has shown us yeah. with miles oh, of yeah. cars lined up for a box of food for a family, people who've never before needed to ask for that help, not to mention all the ones who have been depending on it. The fact that you are the biggest purveyor of food bank, you know, accessibility or the items in it has been extremely life-saving in a really challenging time where on some level, no yeah, offense, we, but pets are the least of it. I mean, people can't feed their families. They don't have a job. They, I mean, all the, the cascade of the problems, economic slash COVID slash no federal government involvement until we hope soon. Well, and in reality, right, like feeding pets is feeding people. It's, it, it is a matter of um, many, many people like the last thing they're going to do is give up their animal. Right, um, right. They'll live, they'll live on the street with their animals. Yep. Some of our best caring clients are homeless people with their pets. And so right now you just have an overwhelming response from the animal shelter and community. Um, and I see a lot of, honestly, local governments working with them, local food banks working with them. Good. People that didn't include food in pet food in their food banks before are really thinking about it now because... Uh, because they're really seeing it out loud is what I would say because of how much worse it's been through COVID. And I so, think that people... It's pe- sad, but it's exciting to see people really valuing, you know, the pet as a family member um, equal and less, <laughs> right. less down the food chain, in, you know, and, and people's willingness to stand up and serve the entire family is, is pretty heartwarming in reality. And people's willingness to admit to need and to put their hand out. It's very hard. 
It's humbling. It's it difficult. Is. So the fact that you've got food banks and partners with the food banks that make it not shameful or not embarrassing or not difficult. I mean, the cars lined up for those boxes of food. Hey, the people actually owned a car and they had gas in it and they had their whole family in the car. So, you know, these were not homeless exactly. people who were, but they could be, they could become homeless. A lot of people are, we, one has often said, or that paycheck away from losing their housing. I guess what's extraordinary about Greater Good Charities is that it does spread the good and it spreads the encouragement to other existing agencies to do that good. Uh, it's That's heartening. We don't always know about that's, that. We've heard yeah. of the Red Cross. We kind of know what the American Red Cross does. I mean, it does good things. Sure. It sets up shelters in whatever, a, a football stadium. Mm -hmm. But the fact that you're there all the time looking to help, looking ahead to where help is needed. And in this case, partnering with the J.R. Peterson Foundation, which I tried to look it up and I tried to reach out to them and say, hey, I'd love to talk to you about your great part in this, mm -hmm. this airlift. And they were somewhat bashful and said, well, in a sense, we're new. We're finding our way. Yep. When we know more, we'll be back to you. And so it was Mira, in a sense, holding her hand out when she happened to know a woman from this new foundation that is pet-centric, um, saying we what we really need is an airlift. And then it was because Greater Good Charities has this bigger picture, and you do have this network, that it's all working together. Right. 600 and fill-in-the-blank pets is a huge well, undertaking. Finally with, took off. Yeah, by the wow. time we finally took off, the animals from all the Hawaiian islands ended up being 96,470 cats. So it was a total of 566. Um, we had some animals that didn't make it on primarily because of illness or concerns right, for right. illness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, it's a herd health situation, and you don't want anybody to be sick on that plane because of what it could do to everybody on the other side. Of course. Or bring the illness to so, the mainland that may, may or may not yeah. have been there. It's extraordinary. And then you had member partner shelters ready to take with a whole list of who, which in, which which creature in which crate right. was so going to where. That was really a, a whole, that was us, that was Wings of Rescue, that was established partnerships. That's right. Um, like you said, where, you know, we sponsor flights to them on a regular basis from other areas because they're simply actually a bit low on adaptable animal funding that they need adaptable animal development on that. So we we also work very closely with Hawaii Emergency Management. We brought in the Veterinary Association who we worked with a few years over there, the Hawaii Veterinary Association, because they're very exciting. They have wonderful keep homeless people and pet programs, so we know them through some of that work. Um, and we gotten into the shelters because um, of the food banking that we've been doing. Oh, and, right. Um, and then we working through logistical stuff, learning how difficult it really is to get things to Hawaii. Um, not that it's, you know, in the, in, in the beginning of COVID, it was very, very difficult to get things on ships over there. Um, and then, you know, working through the expense of it all. It's, it's astronomical and trying to find corporations that could help us. The, the wonderful piece of this, this historical fight, and handling it from the beginning as what it is. Um, Mira reaching out was a brilliant move on her part, and really what that came to was, you know, me and my CEO looking at each other going, okay, well, if these, 
this island needs this much help. We need to, we cannot go to these levels to assist and then look at a state that, that obviously in COVID is having a harder time getting assistance because of this um, and not offer everyone the same. Right. So, because I think some of us really, here on the mainland forget, or I certainly put myself at the top of that right. list, that Hawaii is not one place. It's a state, but it's made up of many different islands that are airline air, air flights distance from each <clears throat> other in a time when the airlines were shut down. So it, it's Correct. very complicated. Exactly it's like a lot of little airplane. nations, a lot of little foreign and, nations. And, and yet they're, they're counties. So like you, you, like people have friends and family and everything else on all these other counties, and we haven't even been able to fly from island to That's island. That's right. That's right. So... You know, they're not able to see grandmom on the big island because they live on Oahu. So, and they can't help each other as easily. They can't just jump on a commuter flight, which they would have done normally. A lot of people, like if you live near me in Philadelphia, a lot of people jump in their car and drive up to New York to work. They'll jump on a plane and go to the next island. Right. You can't do it. But of course, during COVID, all of that is is, you know, yeah. become uh, exponentially more complex and difficult. Well, yeah. Denise, we're, we're, we're running, we're, yeah, we're running low on time. And I just wanted to, to make sure that people know about Greater Good Charities, know that if there's a place that they want to make a year-end donation, you are an organization that does this good in such a complex and thoughtful way and help people and pets. And I think that now more than ever, we understand that those of us very interested in animal welfare and rescue and adoption, that we have to also think of the humans living with those pets and their needs be coming yeah. to the surface more than, than previously. So I love what you yeah. do and how you do it. And I think it's important that while people should support their local rescue or shelter, if you want to look at mm -hmm. a bigger picture, I'm just going to say Greater Good Charities is a really good way to do that. And you'll still be touching the pet world while helping the human one, which is what you guys do all the time. So thank you for being here, and thank you for all the amazing things you do as the director of disaster response. This was not a disaster. It was a very, very happy ending. So well done. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.